Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. If you will, uh, turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Hebrews chapter 3. In just a moment, we're going to read from chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 11. We're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. None is greater than Christ. I hope you had a good new year. We are now uh, on our eighth day in 2023. And uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder uh, how many folks made New Year's resolutions for this year? Uh, I, I made a few a few years ago. I didn't make any leading into this year. Uh, and part of the reason I didn't make any New Year's resolutions is it didn't take me too long into January of any other year before I had broken several of the resolutions that I had made before I entered the year. Uh, over the last couple of years, I, I try to read, and I try to read on leadership and productivity and that kind of thing. And I read several books over this past year where the author promises if you'll follow their template or his template or her template, that they will make you more productive, more able to accomplish things. And essentially, they're promising to give you more hours in the day. They, it's not possible, but that's kind of the way the, the, the mindset of a lot of those books and a lot of those uh, programs are. Because we have a tendency toward productivity. That's why even in our, uh, in our resolutions, we may resolve to do more. We may resolve to make more money. Or even if that's not really the goal, the, the kind of resolution behind it might be to do more, to be better, to, to work harder, all of those things that lean into the concept of productivity. That's a part of our culture. We are a very product-oriented culture, progress-oriented culture. If we did well last year, we need to do better this upcoming year. With that said... Let me ask you a question. Have you ever put on a resolution list, I'm going to rest more effectively in this coming year than I did last year, or something like that? We tend not to think about the concept of rest in line with productivity. And that's really unhealthy spiritually. Here's the danger, right? The danger is that if we as Christians kind of buy into this idea that I've got to produce more, I've got to be better, I've got to be stronger, and we embed that into the way that we live our Christian experience, then we're missing the whole point of what God has done. The entirety of the Bible, starting with Genesis and moving all the way through Revelation, is a lesson to teach us that it's not about us working harder or being better, it's about what God has already done. That's why if you go back to the book of Genesis, why he... Spent six days creating the world, and on the seventh day, God rested. God rested from His creative labors. He's setting in place a pattern, a rhythm for us to rest. The, the subject of Hebrews 3 and 4 is rest and rebellion. God offering an opportunity for His people to rest in His finished work. To rest in what He's accomplished, rather than living in previous patterns of self-absorbed or self-oriented behavior trying to work their way into some kind of experience or some type of self-earned salvation. And so he gives us this section, the beautiful section on rest. We're going to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 7. Let me say something that's not really a part of my sermon, but that's truly, tremendously encouraging for us as believers. Look at verse 7 as it begins. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... He's going to quote from Psalm 95 extensively, actually, in the next two chapters. 
What's encouraging for us is that the author of Hebrews affirms that a psalm penned by David is authored by the Holy Spirit. Okay? One of the reasons we can trust the Bible is because it's not just Moses who wrote it, or David who wrote it, or Paul who wrote it, or the author of Hebrews. It is God working through these authors. So this is a biblical test, a testimony that the Bible is written by God Himself. That should encourage us and should comfort us. Let's pick up in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Psalm 95 is the quote, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? <clears throat> was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is a fascinating argument that the writer of the book of Hebrews is making. So what I'd like to do to help us make sense of it is offer two overarching truths that help us kind of make sense of the text, what's going on here. And then we're going to finish with three admonitions from the text about the rest that God is providing through Jesus Christ. Here's the first truth. Rest is defined as both a place and a state of being. Now, when we think of that term rest... Rightly, we can go to the Sabbath day, a place that, that God ordained or a day that God ordained to set us apart for worship, okay? God rested on day seven. He made a law in the Ten Commandments. Of the Ten Commandments, by the way, only one command is called holy. And that's day four. The Sabbath day command is the only day that God calls, sets apart as 
holy. And so there's a pattern, there's to be a pattern in the life of God's followers where we set aside a day for celebration, for rest, and for worship. In the Old Testament, that was a Saturday. In the New Testament, we followers of Jesus observe that on the Lord's Day, Sunday. It's why we gather on Sunday to acknowledge and praise who praise God and testify that He's the one that has done the finished work that's brought us to salvation. So that's why we're gathered together today to observe that rest. But rest is beyond that in the text. It goes more than just the day, the Sabbath day. It is a place. In the Old Testament, that place was the promised land. It was what the, the place that God had set apart. He had promised to Abraham that this land would be his. The people of Israel spent hundreds of years as slaves in Egypt. God brought them out of slavery and brought them to the cusp of the promised land. And they had an opportunity to enter a place of rest. It's a beautiful picture. <clears throat> beautiful picture. That rest is a place. For us as Christians, that place is not a physical location in the sense of here in this sphere, in this world, that place of rest that we are looking forward to is heaven. We'll more on that in a moment. So rest is a place. Promised land in the Old Testament, heaven in the New Testament. The rest is also a state of being or a state of relationship. Uh, In this text, the people of Israel had an opportunity to enter that rest. In chapter 4, the latter part of verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. In other words, there is an implication that we can enter into rest before we make it to the place of rest. So rest has an already and not yet component. The already component is that in Christ we can be resting in His finished work and not relying on our self-works in order to bring us into salvation. We can also hope for the not yet component, the component of us going to heaven one day, being in that place of rest. So rest is both a place and it's a state of being. Keep that in mind as we work through the rest of our sermon. Let me give you overarching truth number two. Christ is greater because the place of rest He offers is greater than the place of rest in the Old Testament. One of the things that we need to remember about the book of Hebrews, don't get so caught up in the past, the past arguments. Uh, what does it mean to observe Old Testament faith? It's, it's sort of important that we grasp a little bit of that, but we're not Jewish uh, background believers. We don't have to go back and observe the Old Testament faith practices in order to exhibit our religious experience. And so we're tempted to then ignore what we read in the book of Hebrews that deals with the past. But what the writer is telling us throughout the book of Hebrews is that we need to understand the past so that we can know that Christ is greater. Christ is greater than the angels. He's greater than humanity. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than Moses in the text. In these passages, he's greater than Moses and Joshua. We're going to discover he's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the law system, the sacrificial system. Christ is greater. He's greater because the... The regular rest that he provides, in other words, the state of relationship is better than the Old Testament. Old Testament believers could walk with God, but in order to walk with God, they had to bring a lamb. And they had to go to the priest, and they had to sacrifice the lamb. In order to walk with God, they had to observe the Old Testament commandments in a particular way, in a particular set of patterns. Let me tell you something. If you want to relate to God, you do not have to go through a pastor or a priest 
You don't have to bring a sacrificial offering. You don't have to obey God perfectly in order to relate to God. Why? Because Christ is greater. He has come to do what we could not do. He came to do what the Old Testament could not do. He has made a way available for us to have a relationship with God. Beloved, if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and depend on Him alone, He will forgive you of your sins, He will change you, and He will let you enter into a relationship with the living God where rest is available every day, not just the seventh day. Every day, not just the first day of the week. All the time, there's rest in Christ because He has done a work. So the state of relationship, the state of being, is greater now because we have an opportunity to be in Christ and relate to Christ. But not only is the state of relationship better now than it was then, also the place is better now than it was then. In the Old Testament, the place of rest was the promised land. But that promised land still had Canaanites, still had cities, it still had villages to be pillaged and to be uh, overrun, it still had work to be done. Can I tell you something? The place of rest we're looking forward to doesn't have enemies. There's no more... Congress in heaven? Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad you're never going to have to vote again when you go to heaven? There's only one king and he doesn't hold elections. Amen, right? And we don't have to worry about differences in parties. We don't have to worry about world problems and chaos. There are no more math tests in heaven. How about that? How about that, kiddos? There are no more reading exams. I mean, the, the, all that heaven is better than the place of promised rest in the Old Testament because it's perfect. And that's what Jesus offers us. He offers us something that is better, not only in the future in heaven, but something that is better now. Some of you understand about this. Some of you long for times of rest. You need times of rest. Over the the last couple of weeks of December and into the first day or two of January, some of you had extra opportunities to take off. You didn't have to work quite as much. I was able to take a few extra days off and, and rest a little bit and read a little bit and spend some time with family. Some of you have shared that you had some similar experiences. <clears throat> and those are tremendously encouraging, necessary even. We need a time of vacation. We need a time of pause in our weekly calendar to gather among God's people and rest in a place of worship and trusting in what Christ has done. But I want you to watch this. Two books I'm going to commend to you. They're both in your notes or in your handout. One is Adam Mabry's book, The Art of Rest, a fascinating little book that talks about Sabbath and rest. And another one Matthew Sleeth wrote entitled 24-6. Uh, I would encourage both those to you if you're thinking about, okay, what does Sabbath and what does rest and worship have to do with each other? Adam Mabry's book writes this. He said, think of this. If rest is merely the break between toil, that's fine enough. But since rest is meant to be more than that, a time holy to the Lord, it is infused with a deeper significance. Rest with God in this life points us forward to ultimate rest with God beyond this life. Watch this. Rest leaves us with a little tinge of anticipation, as if it wasn't quite the break we were aiming for. That's because it's not the break we were aiming for. C.S. Lewis put it this way, All joy emphasizes our pilgrim status. It reminds, beckons, and it awakens desire. He says, Our best havings are wantings. I'll tell you something. It is good when you can get a few days or a week or a couple of weeks and you can just pause the regular patterns of work and effort in your life and have a vacation 
or have a holiday, and you can pray and you can read and you can rest. God intended that to be healthy in our lives as Christians. He made the calendar, the weekly calendar, to observe regularly a pattern and a rhythm where we stop our regular work and gather among His people so that we would focus on not our productivity, but we would focus on what God has already done. So that we would build into our lives a regular pattern of trust, a rhythm of rest and worship so that we would know God is able. Why does He do that? And why when we get those days... Man, that helped. Those last couple of weeks of December helped me. Every Sunday helps me when I gather and and hear you sing and praise. It helps. Why does it not feel like it's enough? Because it's not enough. Because we have something better to look forward to. We have the anticipation of looking forward to heaven where we get rest permanently. Rest from our physical moral labors. We no longer have to do that in order to be in right relationship with God. Jesus has already done that work. We can rest in Him permanently. Those are the overarching arguments. Now let me give you the three admonitions from the text that drive how we put this into practice. There are more present if you look back at some of the imperative verbs throughout the passage, but I've chosen three that I think get at the heart of this passage of Scripture and that will help us put the rest that God offers into practice. The first The first um, admonition is this. Exhort one another about our share in Christ. This comes from chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He writes in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So he's he's taking the, the quote from Psalm 95 warning his readers about how the people of Israel did not enter rest. And so he's warning his readers, don't be like that. Take heed, pay attention. Then he moves to verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm in the end. He uses a word there that's fascinating. It's the word exhort. It's not just to encourage. It carries with it a little bit of negative connotation, meaning that we're to warn, that we're to share with others, with other Christians, hey, listen, don't lose heart. Don't walk away. Don't, don't leave the faith. Make sure you stay with Christ. Now, now watch this argument. This is going to find its way throughout much of the book of Hebrews. The original readers of the book of Hebrews were likely Jewish background believers living in Rome. Okay? They had a temptation in front of them. If they went back to the religious experience of their past, they would no longer suffer persecution. Okay, that was the temptation. So leave the faith of the present, move to the past, no longer suffer persecution. The author of Hebrews is writing them, encouraging them not to leave Christ because Christ is better than the Old Testament and because Christian faith requires perseverance. There's no room in the Bible, no room in the Bible for someone to have some kind of faith experience, believe experience, and not persevere in that faith experience, and that person can hold on to a hope that they're going to heaven. We're going to deal with that in detail in a few weeks. January 29th, we're going to talk about the warning passages and the falling away passages from Hebrews. But there's a warning there. So what he says to the believers is exhort one another, warn one another, tell them, hey, don't lose faith, don't be caught up in sin, don't walk away from God. And so that is a warning that we, watch this, 
exhort one another. It's not just the job of the leaders to do that. It's not just the job of the pastors or the elders or the deacons or the Sunday school teachers. It's our job as Christians. Now, today we had an installation service or an installation part of the service for our newly elected deacons. Uh, We had done an elder ordination earlier in December so our elders could begin. And we had our first elder meeting this, uh, this past Tuesday here at the church. And the biggest portion of our meeting was spent in a time of prayer. In fact, we prayed by name for many of our church members. We went, went right down the list of praying for church members in the life of our church, praying for them by name. Our goal is by the end of 2023 to have prayed for every church member by name in one of our elder meetings. That's our goal. We want to pray for you. We believe that that's what God has called us to do. But as we went through that list of church member names, one of the things we discovered was how many church members... We're no longer active and present in the life of Wilkesboro Baptist Church. In other words, they would fall into this category of someone who might need to be exhorted and encouraged not to let sin rule in their lives or not to run away from God. Here's why that matters. Let me, let me say this carefully and lovingly. And it's not our job as a church to affirm whether someone is saved. Okay, that's, that's not necessarily our job. But it is our job as a church to kind of, uh, kind of affirm one's salvation as a Christ follower. Meaning that if someone is embedded in the life of the church, lives in the life of the church, when they die here we can say this person lived and loved Christ and followed Jesus and we can affirm them by way of our public testimony as a church that they lived their life as a Christ follower. That is our job as a church. We're to be full of saved members of Jesus, saved Individuals who follow Jesus Christ in both the ministry and the mission of a church. That's who our members are to be. But if you have someone whose membership is at a church, and yet they never show up, they're not embedded in the ministry of the church, they're not living out the mission of the church, how in the world can we as a church say about that person, they know Jesus? We can't say about that person that they know Jesus. We might say, well, they say they know Jesus. But we can't say that they know Jesus because they're not living their life as if they're a Christ follower. So it's our job as elders, one of the things we're going to do in this coming year is try to figure out how do we reach out to those who are separated from the life of the church, who haven't been involved in the life of the church. What does that look like? And let me clarify who I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about the folks that are truly shut in. Okay, there have been folks who, through health circumstances, can't make it to church any longer. In fact, we had one of those gentlemen have surgery this week. And part of the reason he had surgery is he can't walk without pain. So he had surgery, and so they took out a calcified artery in his leg, all in the hopes that he'll be able to walk and be able to come back to church. That's part of the reason he wanted to have surgery. Maybe he wanted to have surgery so he'd come back to church, folks. I'm not talking about the person that can't come to church. I'm talking about the people that say they can't come to church because they're afraid of being around a big crowd, yet they'll go to Food Line at Walmart and ball games and movie theaters and go on cruises and travel and do all this sort of stuff, and yet they, they won't come to church. I'm concerned for them. I'm concerned for them based on what the book of Hebrews says. I'm concerned for their souls. And, and guess what, church? It's not just... My job as your pastor or our job as elders or our deacons to exhort those, it is our job as church members. This was written to every believer. 
So here's what I want you to do lovingly. If you know someone who is not faithfully attending church like they ought to, would you pray for them? Would you pray for them? And would you lovingly exhort or encourage them to get back into the life of living their life as a Christ follower as they ought to? More on that in the coming days and weeks and months as our elders report back to you kind of where we are and what that process looks like, maybe in a formal capacity. But informally, you and I can do that right now because we're concerned about the souls of people. Let me give you the second admonition that's in the text. It's believe in Christ's finished work. Believe in Christ's finished work. In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, Thomas Schreiner writes about chapters 3 and 4. Both the readers and the wilderness generation were recipients of the good news. But the proclamation of God's saving goodness did not benefit the wilderness generation because they failed to believe. The first part of chapter 4 gets at this. Who is it? The last part of chapter 3 asks a series of rhetorical questions, questions that are answered in the text. Who is it that that faced judgment? Who is it that that God abandoned to justice? It's those who had an opportunity to believe and they didn't. What What does Shriner mean by they heard the good news? Well, watch this. The Old Testament Hebrews who were rescued from slavery, they were witnesses to God's miracles in the plagues. So they watched all ten plagues happen. They watched God defeat Egypt's armies. They left Egypt on the Passover night, right? They got to the Red Sea and they walked over the Red Sea on dry land. They watched the Red Sea encompass and destroy all of Pharaoh's armies. They got manna for breakfast. They had, woo- they had water from a rock. They had a pillar of cloud and fire that led them out of Egypt daily. They went to Mount Sinai where they received God's law. They saw Moses' face as it glowed when he met with God. I mean, over and over and over and over again, the people of Israel had affirmation after affirmation of God's rescue, His redemption, His law, His expectations. He gave them that. I mean, these are glorious, testified, community-wide miracles, right? I mean, did you drink the water that came from the rock, that there was no water in the place? Did you see the quail that came? Did you pick up manna? I mean, this isn't just an individual experience of God in your life. This is a community-wide opportunity for the people of God to believe in God. And yet, what happened with that generation? Why does David write about him in Psalm 95? Why are they used as an example in Hebrews 3? Because what happened is they got to the very edge of the promised land. Having witnessed all of these miracles, having heard all of the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the majesty and the glory of God, they could sing with us, how great is our God, just like we sang, you are great, O Lord. They could sing all of those songs. They got to the edge of the promised land. Ten, twelve spies went in. Two said, we can take the land because this is what God has already done. And two said, the cities are too big. The people are too strong. We can't win. And the people of Israel believed the ten rather than the two. They disobeyed God. They disobeyed God because they didn't believe in God. Folks, they experienced the miracles, but they didn't have saving faith. And God says something fascinating and and scary, really. He says, I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. God made an oath. 
And in that oath, he said, those that didn't believe me, that watched all I did and wouldn't yet and yet would not believe me to give them the land that I promised, the rest that I promised, all of them will experience judgment. Here's why this admonition is so important. Church member, Christian, person who's sitting in the room today, we need to savingly believe in Christ, not just factually believe in Christ. It is entirely possible for someone to have a factual acceptance of what happened 2,000 years ago and not genuinely have trusted Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. It's absolutely possible. It took place here in the Old Testament. Man, they, they saw all the facts of what God did. They experienced them. And yet they didn't enter salvation. They didn't enter rest because they didn't trust in God alone to be their rescuer. Notice what it says in the first part of verse chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear. Let us fear. Lest any of us seem to, have fa- seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Few who have believed, for we who have believed, enter that rest. The entry point into saving faith is belief. But this is more than just, I believe in the facts of the gospel. It is, I'm trusting in Christ alone, and I'm going to follow Him because I trust in Christ alone. This is why, this is why lovingly, folks, I'm tremendously concerned about people who claim to be Christians, who have membership at a church, but who never show up. I'm concerned about them because it is entirely possible for someone to experience a lot of good things from God but never experience salvation because they never trust in Christ alone to be their Savior. The admonition is to believe. Trust wholeheartedly. Rely on Jesus alone to be our Savior. And that is an admonition. And that's the only way that we get to enter that rest is by believing in Jesus Christ alone to be our Savior. For those of you that are Christians... They get it, trusting in Christ alone, but yet you're still kind of hung up and nervous and anxious-filled and, and frustrated by the circumstances in life. R. Ken Hughes put it this way in his commentary on the book of Hebrews. Our experience of rest is proportionate to our trusting in Him. I, this is so true in my life. I know it's true in yours. When I acknowledge what God has done through Christ and I trust Him and I remember what He's done through Christ, it makes my struggles and worries and fears and frets and frustrations and stresses a whole lot smaller, and I can experience rest in Him. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why God gave us the rhythm and the pattern of the day of worship. Because He wants us together and hear what He's done To remind us that it's not primarily about what we do, but it's primarily about what He has done. You know what that does? That builds up our trust muscles and builds up our faith so that we can rest in Him on a regular basis while we anticipate a future rest that is coming. Let me give you the third admonition from the text. Strive to enter God's Christ's promised rest. Strive. This is a fascinating way for the writer to put it. Okay? Chapter 4, verse 11. He says, Let us therefore strive. 
to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Strive. Your text or your translation may say, let us make every effort. How in the world can, can the writer tell us that our rest is provided by the work Christ did and then yet tell us strive to enter a place of rest? What, what's he getting at? Is he telling us to work for our salvation? Absolutely not. I think the writer of the book of Hebrews is in accord with Paul in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says, let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The implication is this, we work from our faith to show out the faith that we have. That's what striving is. It's making every effort to make sure uh, in, in the way that we live our lives that our faith is real. And, and in, the, the, to the, in the context, it would be like the people of Israel, the, the, the Jewish background Christians, they left Christianity, right? They, they left the church. They stopped attending worship. They stopped believing in Christ and went back to their old patterns of life. So striving in the context here is us saying, okay, we've put our faith and trust in Jesus alone. I'm going to make every effort to make sure that I live like I'm placing my faith and trust in Jesus alone, that I'm a part of the body of believers, that I'm living out my faith on a regular basis, that I'm not ignoring what Christ has done, but I'm making every effort to live that out. Now, it's important that he would use that language too, make every effort to enter rest, because it reminds us that one day our efforts are not going to be needed anymore, ever. You realize that there's coming a day when, when God's not going to ask you to give any more offerings? He's not going to ask you to teach any more Sunday school classes? He's not going to ask me to preach any more sermons? He's not going to ask us to make any more hospital visits? He's not going to ask us to bake any more cakes or cookies or, or serve people in, in those types of capacities in the future? Why? Because it won't be needed because we'll be in the rest in the place of promised help. That should encourage some of you, by the way. Some of you are struggling because you're caring for a loved one. You're doing the hardest thing you've ever done in life, which is be a caregiver. Some of you are struggling because you're carrying a burden of a child or a parent or a family member, and you're just carrying it all the time. I just want to remind you there is a place where none of those burdens ever will be again because they're in Christ, we're in Christ. And while we may make every effort today, we don't have to make effort then because Jesus made every effort on our behalf. We're not working for our salvation. He's already done that. We're making every effort to make sure we're living our lives as a Christ follower. I think there's also another implication to making every effort. I think it is making every effort to make sure we're in the state of relationship with Christ that he's offered. Let me illustrate it like this. Many of us make every effort for lots of things. Some of us work really, really hard to write that proposal, to run that business, to manage that staff. Some of us work really, really hard for really good things. We would be accused by those around us of making every effort to make that job, to do that job really, really well. Some of you moms and dads make every effort to make your children as successful and healthy mentally, socially, physically, emotionally as you possibly can. Some of you ladies, you make every effort to make your house clean at least one day a week. And then your family ruins it every other day of the week. But you make every effort on that day. Every 
effort. I wonder what would happen to our souls and our Christian lives if we made every effort to make sure we had time with Jesus every day. If we, if we put the same effort into knowing that we know Jesus, listening to Jesus, opening His Word and reading what Jesus has to say to us, pausing in prayer to talk to Jesus and let Him talk to us through His Word, I wonder what our lives would look like as Christ followers if we made every effort to make sure that that relationship with Jesus was our priority. Let me give you a picture to kind of close it out. God has blessed our family with two wonderful boys. Our oldest is going to turn 12 this week, which is kind of hard to believe. And we're going to have an almost teenager. Y'all pray for us uh, in that stage of our lives. And then our youngest is going to turn nine in April. And uh, about this time, nine years ago, my wife was great with child, and we were trying to figure out how we were going to add a second child to the mix of our family. And we kind of thought we had it figured out. Our oldest is a schedule-driven kid. We did the baby-wise formula kind of workbook, and, and he, we got him on a schedule. And, and we followed that really well. He was sleeping through the night at so many months. And, man, we had that, we had that figured out, and we thought we had it figured out. We thought we had it made. We, we were in good shape for adding a second one. And in fact, Nathan came along, uh, had him in the hospital the first two nights he slept, and we thought, man, we've got it made. God laughed at us. And, uh, and we discovered that Nathan had colic. I'm just going to tell you something. I would not wish a colic baby on an enemy. The worst person in the world, I wouldn't give a colic baby to them. The only way, only way colic babies survive is the love of their parents. I'm just going to tell you. Because, listen, he struggled for three years. He, he had, we discovered he had problems with his stomach, or not like physical, but he was allergic to everything. So everything we gave him, we gave him stomach pains. I mean, it was difficult. I'm not sure we slept for three years. The only way he would sleep, the only way he would be settled, is either if we carried him outside... He loved being outside. That helped. Or if we bounced him just right. And we had to bounce him by laying him across his body. Him laying on his right side. Us kind of holding on his left side. And we had to bounce. Just like this. We bounced for three years. Okay? If you sat down with Will, we could sit down in a rocker. And rock him and he'd go to sleep. With Nathan, if you sat down, he cried. If you put him down, he cried. If you didn't hold him, he cried. If you didn't hold him right, he cried. And we just bounced. We made every effort to get him to sleep. Why? So one of us could have a little bit of peaceful sleep for a little bit of time. We just made every effort to get him to sleep. Thank goodness that he grew out of that, right? And I want you to think about this. Christ made every effort by dying on a cruel Roman cross being raised from the dead, so you and I could have eternal peace. And He invites us to strive and make every effort to make sure we're in that right relationship with Him because, folks, He has a promised rest that is fantastic, that solves all the tensions and worries that we have in this life, that place in heaven where we're in His presence forever and for all eternity and for His glory. While we're here, He promises us a measure of peace and rest 
but we've got to work for it. Not for the salvation. He's already given us that work free. But folks, if we don't put effort into our relationship with Jesus, make every effort, strive for that. Listen, lots of us are missing out on the peace that God offers because we're not striving for Him. We're striving for everything else. Maybe you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you've had an experience, but you're not trusting Him alone to be your Savior. I would beg of you, let today be the day of your salvation. Trust Him to be your Savior. If you're here, Christian, rest in Christ. He's promised it. He's invited it. Let's stand as we close. Father, we do not deserve the provision You've made for us. Forgive us where we've missed it. Forgive us, Lord, where we have tried on our own to get there our own way and not trusted in the finished work of Christ. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, for striving for all sort of other things, yet not striving for a right relationship and right fellowship with You. Lord, for any in the room who have not yet trusted You as Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, for their soul. I pray that You convict them of their sin and show them their need for salvation. I pray, Lord, for those on our membership roles and connected to our church that are not regularly in attendance and aren't where they need to be in their walk with you. I pray, Lord, for their uh, conviction, you to draw them to you. I pray that you give us the wisdom and the love to exhort and encourage them. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you should help us to be the kind of people that trust in you wholeheartedly and depend on you and rely on you. And Lord Jesus, may we experience the rest you promise in relationship and in looking forward to that eternal abode. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.